HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. World Central Kitchen is serving thousands of fresh meals to Ukrainian families fleeing home, as well as people remaining in the country. This week on Let's Talk About Food, host Louisa Kasdan spoke with Henry Patterson about his upcoming relief trip. So you're going to Poland, and I think you told me you're going to be there for at least two weeks. I'm going to Poland to help feed Ukrainian refugees with Jose Andreas's World Central Kitchen. I decided that's what I wanted to do for my 70th birthday. I leave in just a few days. We all see that what the Russians are doing is contemptible. As a food person, we all love to help. It's in our DNA. And here are people who really need our help. So if you want to help the Ukrainian refugees, either with money or even your hands and heart, find hashtag Chefs for Ukraine and World Central Kitchen. We have to do something. We can help. Remember, hashtag Chefs for Ukraine. This episode is brought to you by Bento Box, a full-service marketing and commerce platform that helps restaurants get discovered, make more money, and engage their diners. Join over 8,000 restaurants already using Bento Box today to deliver better hospitality. Visit getbento.com slash HRN today to get your first month free. That's getbento.com slash HRN. Hello, hello, Heritage Radio Network listeners tuning in from 165 countries around the world, about a million listens a month. And today, I know everybody is tuned into Tech Bites, the weekly show where we look at the intersection of food and technology. And today, that intersection is a vending machine, for real. I was traveling not too long ago. I was in an airport. It was very exciting. And while I was walking to my gate, I walked by a vending machine called Farmer's Fridge. And it was fascinating. It was beautiful and bright white and green and glassy. And there were little jars of salads and snacks and food just right there. And I actually turned around and went back and took a look at it and took some pictures of it to remind myself that this is a great topic for us to talk about on Tech Bites. So Thanks to the connectivity of social media, I tracked down Luke Saunders, who is the founder and CEO of Farmer's Fridge, who's here with us today. Luke, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. You know, it's um, 
Farmer's Fridge is not a new company, and that unto itself makes you an interesting CEO and founder to talk with. On TechBytes, we typically talk to founders who are really at the beginning and early stages of business. A lot of innovation and startup and pitching and beta testing and um, you know proof of concept. Uh, we, you know, it's always interesting to talk to people who have survived that first year, that <laughs> first two years, those early rounds of fundraising, and have survived all of the advisors. Um, what people at home might not really know is when you're a founder and you have an idea and you start to take in money or participate in an accelerator or something like that, oftentimes the people around you advising you, giving you money, have ideas about what your company should be. And sometimes people get sidetracked or segue into something different and Sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't, <laughs> but you are here today. Um, it's, it's great to have you. And you started Farmer's Fridge back in 2013. Yeah, that's right. It's almost um, nine years ago. Exactly. That's amazing. And you too were spending a lot of time in airports as the story goes. You were a traveling salesman. Yeah, I actually was uh, living a life on the road. So I was, um, I was driving most of the time, about a thousand miles a week, um, but also in and out of airports. And, and the problem I was having was I just couldn't find a fresh, healthy meal um, very often. So it was really just fast food or vending machines. Um, so I started thinking, you know, why is this a problem and how do I solve it? As mother of invention, you know, necessity is the mother of invention for most things. Um and this one worked also. When you and I were talking a few weeks ago to sort of get ready for the show, you quoted a fascinating statistic to me, which was, I think, 100 million people a day visit a vending machine in the United States. Yeah, I mean, that's the number we've been able to find. And it makes sense. There's somewhere between five to seven million vending machines out there. Um, and it really is the most convenient form of food service on the planet. So um, when I was looking into the problem, basically, the long story short version is it, it's a cost to serve problem. So it's very expensive to move fresh, healthy food through the supply chain. There's a lot of waste. Um, there's a lot of cost and refrigeration, all that stuff. And so when you're looking at ways to make something um, more accessible, you're looking for ways to lower the cost of getting it to people. Um, a vending machine actually turns out to be a great way to do that. When we think about vending machines, most people have encountered the vending machine, which is cold drinks, soft drink sodas, bottled waters, the snack machines, you know, chips, peanuts, candy bars, that kind of thing. We do in airports and in actually in some of the subways in New York City and some of the larger stations where you're walking through corridors, you see vending machines for things like drugstores or other, you know, kind of necessity or sundry items, things that you might find in like a hotel gift shop or a bodega or a 7-Eleven or something like that. But it's very um, rare that we see actual fresh food in a cold refrigeration situation. And you know, you talk about supply chain issues and getting fresh food to places. This was an issue you were having back in twenty seven, back in two thousand thirteen, long before the current supply chain issues that we're having now in the pandemic COVID nineteen era. 
Yeah, I mean, well, so we actually, um, I didn't know any better at the time. And I was looking at the vending machine and saying, well, why can't there be fresh food in here? Um, it seems like that, you know, you just stick it in there. Well, it turns out um, <laughs> there's a lot of issues with uh, getting the food to the vending machine and managing all the inventory. Um, and so we actually kind of by accident ended up building our own supply chain. So it started in a shared kitchen on the west side of Chicago where we were making the food and we had our own delivery to the fridge. Um, but that really turned out to be the key to making the high quality food available. Um, and so we, we scaled up our own internal manufacturing and distribution. Um, so the supply chain issues haven't um, been easy to manage. We've had to like flex ingredients and do a lot of things to keep um, our costs in line. But in general, we've actually been pretty um, isolated from it because our, our the way that our basket of goods works, we have over 150 ingredients, so we can kind of swap things out and change them up. Um, and a big part of what we're doing is actually predicting what the demand will be a month from now. And then we can use that to place an order and set contracts and, and do a lot of things to mitigate um, the supply chain issues. So when, when I saw the vending machine in the airport, uh, and if you know people are interested in taking a look at what the machines look like and what the farmer's fridge offerings look like, they can follow along online. You can visit the website. It's delivery.farmersfridge.com. And that's Farmer's Fridge, all one word with no punctuation. Or you can check them out on Instagram, at Farmer's Fridge. The first thing that I think about is the actual food and the salads and the wraps and things like that that are in the uh, reusable and recyclable containers. But in fact, that's is that almost the easier part of the business, making all these great, delicious things and then putting them into containers? You're almost, your business is almost a few different businesses kind of cobbled together along your end-to-end -end supply chain, no? Because when we yeah. had our conversation, we talked a lot about technology and coding and Uber open source code, which was the farthest thing from my mind when I was standing in front of the machine. <laughs> yeah, no, for, it, it's definitely, I would say the actually the easy part is the vending machine itself. So, you know, getting getting a machine that can spit food out when you tell it to uh, is pretty straightforward. And once you get it set up, um, it works pretty reliably. You um, had to build your own vending machine, correct? Yeah, we, we basically took an off-the-shelf vending machine and ripped it apart and added a bunch of electronics to it, and it made it look really nice. Um, so we still do that today. We actually we do the touchscreen, the payment system, all the inventory system. Um, so we we did that has been a lot of work to create the tech that goes behind the machine um but actually like the whole process of integrating manufacturing which is for a lot of people their only business and then a distribution company we operate across 17 states doing our own deliveries um and then the technology piece of the business that basically makes all of that work and be scalable and efficient um so it is. It, we think of it as almost three businesses in one, um, and the technology component um, really doesn't necessarily come through to the consumer at the point of sale. So you see a, a vending machine and it works, and you get your food in 15 seconds and you move on. But in order for us to do that, we have to use um, that demand planning algorithm that you mentioned is actually um, 
the profit uh, demand planning algorithm from Uber is what helps us predict what we're going to sell, you know, a month from now. And then we refine it three weeks, two weeks, one week out. And then we actually have another proprietary algorithm that we built that, you know, every single day, we don't know where our food is going. So we're making the food today um, and we will figure out where it's going to go tonight using what we call the allocation algorithm. So that we'll look at the inventory in the entire fridge network and what is the probability that it will sell in any given location and basically what's the maximized profit of sending the food in that given allocation. And then we pack it up and put it on the trucks based on that. So it's, it's a three-step process because you, you plan the demand, you allocate the food, and then once the food actually gets to the fridge, we're pushing levers to try to move specific inventory based on how it's selling. So at what point did you bring on algorithms and code to do this? This sounds to me, you know, I think of things in terms of restaurants or small food shops and, you know, one person, one business or a group of people in one business, you know, as the point of origin, you know, predicting what your sales are going to be for an item. Most people do that sort of in their head as math or manually on paper. You know, we had hundred customers, you know, 25 of them bought the, you know, green goddess salad. So that's Monday to Friday. Nobody buys it on the weekends. And, you know, they're, they're using just history and, you know, numbers and sort of making a best guess. Did you start off doing that in the business when you started at the very beginning? And at, at what point, at what point of scale does a business need to move into a space where it becomes automated and an algorithm and code? Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. Cause I, at the beginning in the first fridge, we had it in a food court and I would actually sit in the food court. I would talk to a lot <laughs> of the customers. Like I kind of, I, I would like walk up and ask them questions about what they liked or didn't like, or if I saw that they were coming back every day, trying to figure out why they were doing that. Um, Did anybody think you were it, cre the creepy guy sitting in the food court like all day, just like <laughs> looking at this vending machine? Um, I'm sure I had like <laughs> a one spot I could sit where nobody like I was up above on like a mezzanine. So if I really wanted to oh, be even better, unnoticed. like <laughs> sniper yeah, stalker. Great. <laughs> exactly. So but yeah, for sure. I think it was a super uncomfortable experience for everybody involved. But it was really critical to really understanding what was working, what wasn't working, who my customers were. And so I kind of just sucked it up and, and made the awkward situation. Um, That's very you classic know. <laughs> entrepreneur, you know, yeah. public feedback, iteration, you know, getting out there, yeah. pounding the pavement. Yeah, for it's sure. Like a, and it was, it's like it, a textbook example of. Yeah, and it was literally in my office. Like we didn't have an office; <laughs> we had a kitchen, and so I would do job interviews in that food court. Um, and That's, I would like we'd be in the middle of a job interview, and I'd see the machine went down, and so I'd be like, "Excuse me, can I just? Uh, I need to go fix this. I'll be right back, and we'll keep interviewing." So it was actually like a good um, all around, both for the employees that were going to be joining and, and that customer feedback. Um, but but going. Back to that, I, I had a really good sense of, you know, who my regulars were, what products they liked, what they were buying again, how that all worked. Um, and it it was great if I could st sit right there. So I used a spreadsheet and I did it exactly the way that you're describing that restaurants, for the most part, do it today. Um, it basically started, it, it broke it too. <laughs> so the second I couldn't be there all the time, um, I was unable to do that. So I was only looking at the sales data and and we would 
try to piece it together based on what was selling and what wasn't selling um, and did okay up until about 15 locations. And once we got to 10 to 15 locations, it was a complete mess. Um, it was essentially trying to aggregate that across everywhere and, and sales at the fridge level actually fluctuate up to 50% a day. Mm. So, so there's the very, what is that a result of things like the weather? So for like in the food court, for example, if it was a nice day, we would see a lot of traffic. And if it was not such a nice day, everybody would stay in and order in or go somewhere closer to their office. Um, so, so you started to get these diverging patterns based on what type of location you were in, what type of customer you had. So think of like an airport when there's a travel delay um, or holidays, seasonal travel, things like that. So every location ends up being different and has this really high variability. What was interesting about it is we were selling about the same amount of food every day. So we knew that if we could we could make that food to a forecast, but then figuring out where it went and getting it there um, was the key ingredient to reducing the waste and making this business scalable. Um, and so for a few years, I mean, we just kind of powered through with spreadsheets and basic statistics. Um, and then we got to a large enough scale where we were able to invest in our own software for the fridges and our own engineering team. Um, and it took us probably two or three years past that point to where it really got to be a, an automated, smooth process that we were able to run um, so it was, it was almost halfway, it was more than halfway through the business life cycle, um, where we got to the point. And, and even now that Uber algorithm that I'm mentioning, um, is like in the last year, cause we actually have the data science infrastructure built to do that. So you're not a tech guy. You're not a tech coding Silicon Valley kind of guy at heart. How, how did you come to the realization that this was the type of infrastructure that you needed to make the business run better. It's not necessarily something a person focused on, you know, great fresh salads or, you know, the consumer experience at the end would necessarily think about. I mean, I've been doing this podcast, Tech Bytes, since January of 2015, and I was not really aware that Uber had open source code until we had our conversation. So, and I'm relatively plugged into the space. So how did was it a was it a tech hire? Was it realizing you had a problem that you needed to solve and then you started looking for answers? Or did you have an advisor who said, hey, I think you need a CTO? <laughs> yeah, so we um I think it really started with the problem I just described. It was very obvious that we could not scale the business and, and solve the problem of making fresh healthy food accessible if we didn't have very scalable inventory management infrastructure and kind of three components. So one was uh, technology to enable manufacturing and distributing the food uh, in a more efficient and scalable way. So that's things like um, the drivers having, we have a driver's app that we built that they go to the fridge and they can see what inventory they need to take out, what they need to put in. They can send us notes about the fridge or if there's a broken part um, to like how we produce the food, um, the, the, uh, database that we use is just a massive Excel, um, like a G sheets document, but it's 3 million cells. So you, you start to get a sense for this is very complicated. And the only way to solve it is with scalable software. 
Um, and so when we had raised our first institutional capital, one of my first questions for them was like, how, where do I find someone to help me with the technology to really make this scalable? Cause this isn't going to scale, um, as it is. And I got introduced to a single engineer who basically built the initial prototype version of our fridge software in their basement. And it was right around the time that AWS was really taking off and IoT technology was pretty accessible. Like you could go on AT&T's website and, and order the SIM cards, things like that. Um, and so we got to like the first version of our fridge built on a modern cloud infrastructure. Um, and from there, like we just continued to have um, more problems that we could solve and needed more engineers to do. And, and so it was, um, we basically went through three phases, like the individual um, contributor engineering phase. And then like the early CTO that we brought in kind of built the team from two people to 10 um, and got us to where we had sort of a basic level of operating. And then we brought in um, another person that was able to scale us from, you know, 10 to where we are today, which is like 40 or 50 on the engineering team. Um, is the engineering team the biggest team on your, in your company? Uh, so it's, it's the second biggest, we still have to, uh, make the food, distribute the food, uh, and manage all of those, um, teams. So that our, our largest organization is actually on the manufacturing and distribution side. Um, but after that, yeah, it's engineering and, um, the, again, the, along the way I've learned a lot, um, but mostly just from, um, trial by fire. So for <laughs> example, when we launched the first fridge, um, I was like, great. You know, Back this in is 2013, working. this is the fridge in the food court. Yeah, exactly. And I was like, great, this is working. I'm selling food, but it didn't even have inventory tracking. So it was <laughs> like, we, <laughs> we could, we could do it locally, but we couldn't measure it remotely. And so then you, you're like, well, that should be easy, right? Like, why don't you just make it, um, tell me what's in the machine. Cause I'm telling it, it should be able to tell me. Um, and they're like, no, that's like a ton of work. <laughs> so um, just kind of going through the process or like when we launched our own version of the software early on, um, we had designed it to be very um, like stable in the event that it wasn't connected to the internet for some period of time. Um, but as a result, like all of the data was stored locally and had to be edited locally. So when you got to like 35 fridges and you're, remote logging in to each one to change a single item. And that requires you to change like three lines of code and three files. <laughs> it gets very unscalable very fast. So it was just like, we would have these problems and you, you just learn and you hire great people that help you think through how to solve those in a scalable way. It's a fascinating baseline to a business like this. And again, I think most people like me walking by a fridge or seeing a picture of it or thinking about, you know, fresh food in a vending machine, you know, my focus is certainly the, the food that's in the fridge itself and, you know, who's cooking it. I know you just recently launched a, a collaboration with Chef Sean Brock, who's much loved American chef and farm to table and all those kinds of things. And that would be front of mind to me. And it would never occur to me, you know, how deep the technology side would be. It's also interesting, you know, tech people, when they talk about product, they're talking about the code and the delivery systems and the algorithms and, and the things that they're building in terms of the technological infrastructure. When you talk to food people about product, they're talking about the salad and the bowl. Yeah, and I think that's where I had an advantage 
um, in the sense that like, I think about it as how do you combine those things um, to make this business work? And so I'm, I, and especially at the beginning, I would say the first three years, my entire focus was product around the food itself and what were we selling and did customers like it and how are like down to like, how do we cut the cucumbers to make sure that it has the best texture profile in the dish so that we have a really strong, loyal customer base. And then as it evolved, we hired a great culinary director. We hired an operations director to manage the execution of that great food. And, and the problem became, how do we give these teams the data and the tools to make their lives easier and the business more scalable? And so like my product role became more about building a scalable organization that had the mindset that I had around food at the beginning, but had better visibility and better tools to make it real at scale. All things I'm sure you were not thinking about when you launched in 2013 <laughs> and you got out of your car and went to go sit in that food court in front of that one machine. No, definitely not. I, I think I, in, on some level I had this um, kind of sandwich view where like there would be the initial phase, which is like, we open a fridge and everyone loves it and um, it's very successful. And then like the end where you're this huge food business that has changed the way the world eats and is serving as many healthy meals every day as McDonald's. Um, but everything in between was kind of just like, we'll figure it out as Blurry. we go. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that, that montage, so. the, the montage of progress, perhaps. Yeah, like in exactly. a movie or a TV show, you just like montage through the middle. Yeah, like we'll figure that out. And and thankfully, I did not know how hard that would be because I don't think I would have um, had the courage to do that. <laughs> That's interesting. We are going to take a quick break and find out who is underwriting this show. Do you know that Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit? We keep the lights on and the mics hot out of the generosity of our members, many of whom are listeners like you and sponsors like this one. Stay with us. Hi, I'm Katie Mosman-Wadler, Executive Director of HRN. HRN is dedicated to amplifying small businesses that keep our communities vibrant. Today, I'm asking business owners to take part in our business membership drive by supporting HRN's mission with a $500 membership. HRN will shine a light on your work and you'll help sustain our mission to expand the way eaters think about food. As a thank you for this tax-deductible donation, your business will receive on-air mentions, social media posts, listings on our website, and more. You'll also play an essential role in keeping nonprofit food radio on the air. Go to heritageradionetwork.org biz to become a business member today. That's heritageradionetwork.org B-I-Z. Thank you for your support. You are listening to Tech Bites, the weekly show on the Heritage Radio Network, where we look at the intersection of food and technology. And today that intersection is a vending machine, possibly a vending machine near you. We are talking with Luke Saunders, who is the founder and CEO of Farmer's Fridge. If you want to check them out online, you can go to delivery.farmersfridge.com. Follow them on social media at Farmer's Fridge. It's basically fresh food in a refrigerated vending machine. And I discovered it walking through an airport recently, doing some travel post 
COVID-19 or during COVID-19 or post-travel restrictions. And I was kind of happy to be walking, you know, from security to my gate. And I walked by and take a look online. They're pretty appealing, you know, white and green, refrigerated, lots of fun things peeping out at you. They currently have 400 fridges across the country. Um, And recently there was a great article about them Just under 200 are in hospitals and in airports. And one thing that we, Luke and I, spoke about earlier before doing the show, like we've been speaking with all the entrepreneurs and founders who have been on this show post-March 2020, what happened to your business in 2020 and 2021 in the pandemic? On the one hand, a vending machine seems like a great business that might be insulated from some of the issues that a brick and mortar restaurant had. There's no human contact, really. They're, you know, just there. It's maybe the best idea. But like all other businesses, you definitely had a bump in the road and you had an almost slowdown back in 2020. So take us through the evolution of your business over the past two and a half years, because it's a little bit different today than it was back in 2019. Yeah, that is definitely very true. So going back in time to March of 2020, we were approaching the end of our best month ever. And we lost 87% of our revenue in a two week period of time. That's amazing. So (laughs) yeah, just to put it in perspective, you went down to 23%. uh, 13. 13%. Yeah, (laughs) 13%. So we we were best um, day ever to worst day ever. Yeah, I mean, we we were on a, a roll. We had just launched our first new region uh, the September prior, and everything was looking good. Um, and and we were actually sitting in our office, and I was having to decide if we were going to go home. They hadn't actually issued the shelter in place in Chicago yet, um, but we were reading articles about flattening the curve and social distancing. And um, essentially, I had made the decision that there are, anyone in the office who could was going to start working from home. And the reality was, if you think about a business like ours, we sell mostly to people who are at work. It was our, our core business. So even in a hospital, it's, it's people who are working at the hospital. Um, and, and we knew this would have a massive impact on our business. And sure enough, a week later, the city shut down. And that's when we really lost um, most of our revenue. Um, and what we were able to do, um, and this is really the team's effort and and ingenuity. Um, we looked at the market. We said, hey, we have this asset. We make food. We distribute it ourselves. We have the technology to enable us to process all the different orders and send them wherever we want any day. So we're, we're used to not knowing where the food is going. So let's just find a new place to send it <laughs> and tell it where to go. Um, and so our sales team went out and, and started talking to the hospital clients and saying, listen, we know you're under a lot of pressure. If there's anything we can do to help, just give us a heads up. But otherwise, we're going to leave you alone and keep doing what we're doing. Um, and they were our only business left at that point. Um, and they actually told us they're shutting down their cafeterias and needed more grab and go. And so that became about half of our business. And then um, the tech team actually stood up a Shopify website and started offering home deliveries. And the operations team uh, made all this stuff come to life. And the marketing team started telling people about it. 
Um, and we were able to get back to almost 100% of our revenue within about eight weeks. Um, so that was like the COVID uh, high period. And then um, we took a step back. We had stabilized revenue, which was obviously step one in, in stabilizing the business. And then started thinking about like, okay, well, how long does this last? Where do we go next? What is going to stay? What is going to go away? Um, and we made some key decisions to invest in home delivery through third parties. So just shipping it through UPS, um, built the tools to make that possible every day and then focused on retail. So we added um, Target and Albertsons in the beginning of 2021 um, and since have scaled our retail channel up from zero to 230 stores. Um, and now we're actually uh, a couple of weeks away from fridge revenue exceeding its pre-COVID peak. That's amazing. So you're moving back to best day ever. Oh yeah, we we crossed the best day ever mark again uh, in about the middle of 2021, um, and actually 2x our pre-COVID peak uh, in September and October of 2021. That's fantastic. So we're, we're actually we're on track to be three times larger than our pre-COVID peak this March. And that also means being three times larger. That means you were able to support and keep your staff employed and all yeah, your and all the all the vendors and the people along your supply chain. Yeah, so that was actually probably the hardest um there were two really difficult things. One was, you know, how do I keep my team safe? We had we had drivers that were going into hospitals that were um full of covid patients and just trying to find that balance of, you know, their personal safety and the business continuing to operate. So we we were um, very in touch with that and trying to do everything we could. And then on the other side, you know, we knew that if, when I talk about, um, we have manufacturing capabilities or we have distribution capabilities, I'm, I'm talking about people. <laughs> so we, we actually have people that make food and people that deliver food. And if you lay off all those people, then you've just lost one of your core assets. Um, and so we actually went to the board and said, you know, we know this sounds crazy. We've just lost 87% of our revenue in our core channel, um, but we want to pay everybody to keep working here because we think we have a path back. And if we lay everybody off, we'll never get back. And to their credit, they were like, well, you know, that makes sense. So you should go ahead. We'll give you a month, like see what you can get done. Um, and this was before like any, any kind of government help or any of that stuff had come out. Um, so it was very fortunate that we had a board with the foresight to say like, yep, that makes sense. It, it wasn't an easy conversation. There was certainly a lot of pushback and questions, but ultimately they were like, we, you, you got a month, see what you can do. And, and by a month, we had gotten a lot back and shown that this was a good decision. So some flexibility, some pivoting and, and just the opportunity to give it a try, which is essentially what being an entrepreneur is anyway. With, without the same sort of stress factors of global pandemic, but convincing people that you have an idea and you can make it and give me money to fund me for a little while while I'm trying to figure out if I can actually make it is the entrepreneur story. Yeah, I think that's right. I think we had three key elements. So one was like a team that was willing to put in the effort to make those pivots and, and come up with the ideas to solve all the new problems it generated. Uh, number two was like kind of the entrepreneurial startup mindset. So it wasn't um, totally crazy. Like we were constantly fighting for our lives. And so like this was just another version of that. 
Um, and then three, I do think it's worth calling out. We, we had infrastructure that made this possible. So unlike a restaurant where you, you can turn on DoorDash, but you can't really like change your entire revenue model overnight, the whole thesis of Farmer's Fridge was to have an integrated supply chain connected directly with customers and layer on proprietary technology to make it all efficient and fast and flexible. So when this happened, we're like, we have the speed and flexibility and efficiency to make this work. We just need to figure out where the customers are. And so that I think is a key part of the transition is like it, the business was actually designed to cope with that kind of massive change. The interesting thing about that is many of the founders who have been on this show from March 2020 onward have all had innovative ideas and built their companies to be outside of the traditional systems and supply chain and processes. They've all, you know, similar to you, wanted to create a product that maybe didn't exist and make that product in a way that was better for the environment, better for the people making it, better product, better things. And so because so many of them were outside the traditional supply chains and structures, many of them survived and actually thrived because they were able to sort of absorb some of the space in the vacuum that was left when the traditional supply chains and things just came to a screeching halt. Um, and in some instances have not come back online to pre-2020 um, levels. The, the question that I would ask you today, we're in spring 2021 now, you brought some new models and, and products online, some new distribution ideas online that you were not thinking about before. Now you have a slightly different uh, you know, breakdown of how and where your products go, how they're delivered and who your consumers are. Looking forward now to the balance of the year and into 2023 um, without using the algorithm, um, <laughs> what are you looking towards in the future? Are you going to maintain these new, these new uh, retail sales chains? Because while people are returning to work, people are returning to travel, some consumer behaviors, I think, that we've established over the past two years have really solidified with people. Um, people are doing hybrid work. They're working partially from home, partially from an office. People like the idea of delivery and convenience, um, sometimes just because it's easier, sometimes because the time they would have spent going out to get ingredients and make a meal at home, they're spending that time elsewhere, family, friends, working. So even though we're going back to some of the lifestyle work habits that we had prior to 2020, much of what we've pivoted to is, is here to stay, I think. Yeah, I, I agree. I think we, we recognized that about halfway through that, you know, there's, there's just no going back to normal as defined by like February, 2020. Um, so for example, hybrid work, I think is very much here to stay. And that means that the urban core center gets, you know, say 60% of the traffic it was getting prior to COVID. So that changes the landscape completely. You have to rethink everything um, with changes that large. And 
to your question about the new channels, we're definitely keeping them. Um, what we did in 2021 was we transitioned them to the version that we think is best suited for the world that we have now. Um, so in the retail channel, for example, um, we're actually doing the deliveries to the stores ourselves. We make sure that the inventory is presented in the right way and we're leveraging all of the locations that we're already going to for fridges to build distribution density and then just adding another 25 or 50 stops on top of that. Um, so it fits really well with our existing infrastructure. Um, and our plan was always to be an omni-channel business. It, the fridge is still number one. Um, it's our biggest channel by far um, and will continue to be for the foreseeable future. And the idea there was we own this channel. It's our best connection with customers. It's the most convenient format. It's bringing food to places where people can't get fresh food and, and at times of day where the only other option is a 24-hour fast food restaurant or a vending machine. Um, but we can compete in retail because we have great products. We have distribution and production economies of scale. Um, we have a really well-known brand in, in the markets that we're in. Um, and we're actually like five times larger than the next closest branded fresh food product in retail. So why wouldn't we go and, and try to bring our food into these places? So um, they'll definitely stay. And, and I think it's it really was an acceleration of that. So we had a couple years where the fridges weren't the focus. Um, and so it enabled us to take the team's time and energy and invest in the capabilities to make those channels scale. Um, we just wouldn't have done that for more years because we would have only focused on fridges. Well, and there it is again, necessity, invention, <laughs> all those types of things. Um, and, you know, so much of the entrepreneurial grind is just the entrepreneurial grind and you have external factors and oftentimes it seems like the end of the world and sometimes it actually is. <laughs> and I, I laugh just because, you know, we're, we're coming through it to the other side, I, not because it's, it's humorous or, or not real and, and not very serious, but, you know, I think entrepreneurs are uniquely poised to sort of moving through things that are extremely stressful and trying to find creative ways of solving problems. And ultimately in the food tech space, it's food, it's technology to lead people to an analog food experience that is better for people, better for the planet and better for all of us. So it's an interesting time. Um, and you know what, there's more than 400 of those fridges out there in the world. So maybe you'll be walking down an airport concourse and see one and stop and take a look. Uh, if you think Farmer's Fridge is interesting. Check them out online, delivery.farmersfridge.com. Follow them on social media at Farmer's Fridge. If you want to go work there because you think it sounds like a cool job or you're a coder or a delivery person or you make an amazing salad, they are perpetually hiring. So take a look at the careers page there. Um, they are currently also doing a really fun collaboration with Chef Sean Brock. And anybody listening to this show on the Heritage Radio Network definitely knows who that is. I want to thank Luke Saunders for calling in from Chicago today to tell us the story. And I, I have to say, I, my favorite part of the conversation today is you sitting in the food court in front of the fridge as your remote office. Um, that's just a really, really <laughs> great vignette. It, 
Yeah, it was a wonderfully fun time. I'm, I'm glad I have a real, I don't have an actual office. I, I, we have an office as a company, but yeah, it was, it was wonderful. <laughs> well, if you enjoyed the show, come back and listen next week. If you really loved it, subscribe to it on your favorite podcasting platform. Leave us a five-star review. That'll help the algorithm bubble us up to the top and more people will discover it. If you really think this show is important, if you really think Heritage Radio Network and all the stories we tell and all the information we share is important, go to heritageradionetwork.org, click the beating heart, become a member. We are also running a special for business memberships right now. So if you're a business and you want to participate in the programming, the network, and connect with our community and other business owners, heritageradionetwork.org backslash biz. Who knows? Maybe you can underwrite this show. I'm Jennifer Liuzzi, and this is Tech Bytes. Tech Bytes is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter, Just enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.